Well, as was mentioned this morning, it is a joy to be here today, um, what we call Easter Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is with great privilege that we get to look at His Word and proclaim the risen Lord amongst ourselves as a reminder for each one of us. Today we'll be in the text mainly of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will be moving back and forth a little bit. I've entitled the message for this morning, The Gospel Implications of the Resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? We'll take a look a little bit at the resurrection itself and uh, some different aspects of it and then move further into the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, verses 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. So here we know the city of Corinth was at the heart of a very important trade route in the ancient world. And like many cities that thrive on trade, means a lot of people are coming in, a lot of ships coming in. Um, Corinth, like these other cities, also had a reputation, sexual immorality, religious diversity, and corruption. In fact, history records that they took the name for the city of Corinth and used it as a derogatory term at times when they were, say, to Corinthianize something actually meant to pollute it or to pervert it. The church that Paul planted here, and it was in Acts 18, it was floundering under these influences, and it began to divide over many issues. When we read Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, we see these divisions and all the different issues that Paul addresses. 1 Corinthians addresses many practical questions that were dividing the church, questions concerning things like spiritual gifts. We know Paul's um, discourse on that in the book of Corinthians. Um, Immorality was a big thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 lists that very clearly. Divisions that were occurring, Paul states, some of you say, I am of Paul, some of Apollos. So he's seeing people are becoming um, divided based on which teacher that they may be most prominently heard or listened to or were maybe converted under. Marriage issues, food offered to idols, and then we also see in the text that we read the resurrection. It is this latter, um, the resurrection, that we want to look at this morning. And as Paul brings this holy pistol um, with all its issues and concerns, he brings it together with an appeal to the gospel here in chapter 15, and of which we see the resurrection is a crucial element. We also see, if we just move down in, this, in the text this morning, move to chapter, or verse 12, sorry. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all be made alive but each in his own order, Christ the first fruit, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul prizes the gospel he received from Christ, a message that includes Christ's death and resurrection. Indeed, Christ's resurrection is, an essential, is as essential for our salvation as his death. 
And Paul considers what would result if Christ did not rise. Both the apostles' preaching and their hearers' faith would be useless. Living believers would not be forgiven, and deceased believers would have perished. In summary, if in Christ we have hope in this life alone, we are of all people most to be pitied. Thankfully, in, in fact, Christ has been raised. We see in verse 20, Paul starts, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruit of those who have fallen asleep, which means there are more to come. Paul contrasts the effects of the two Adams. Adam's sin in Eden brought physical and spiritual death to the human race, while Christ, the second and last Adam, by his death and resurrection, secured resurrection and eternal life for all believers. At his return, he will vanquish all our enemies, including the last enemy, death, as we saw in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Regarding the resurrection, John MacArthur writes, Clearly Christianity is simply not Christianity without the resurrection. Glorification was promised in the Law and the Prophets and by Jesus and the Apostles, and Paul wrote that without it, the Christian has no hope. To deny his final work, this final work of God, in the plan of salvation would be to deny the Christian message of peace and joy and final glory. And we see in verse 12 of our text, Paul is addressing that. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So with that, let's take a look at some aspects of the um, resurrection and some of the theological implications. Louis Burkhoff addresses this in his... Uh, systematic theology and he speaks of several different points first being the nature of the resurrection the resurrection of christ did not consist in the mere fact that he came to life again and that body and soul were reunited if this were all that it involved he could not be called the first fruits of them that slept as first corinthians fifteen twenty says nor the firstborn of the dead as colossians 1 18 says since others were restored to life before him we know the accounts in scripture of people that were raised to life so it cannot be merely just restoring back to life. But it consisted rather in this, that in, hum in Him, human nature, both body and soul, was restored to its pristine strength and perfection and even raised to a higher level, while body and soul were reunited in a living organism. From the analogy of the change, which according to Scripture takes place in the body of believers in the general resurrection, we may gather something as to the transformation that must have occurred in Christ. Even as believers, we are already part of this resurrection. We already know the old has been put away with and the new has come, right? We have been changed. We, have been, we are a new creation, the Bible says. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and 42 to 44, just further in the text that we read, we're not going to go there this morning, but he writes there that the future body of believers will be incorruptible. That is incapable of decay, glorious, which means resplendent with heavenly brightness. Powerful, that is instinct with energy and perhaps with new faculties. And spiritual, which does not mean immaterial or ethereal, sorry, <coughs> excuse me, but adapted to the spirit, a perfect instrument of the spirit. From the gospel story, we learn that the body of Jesus had undergone a remarkable change so that he was not easily recognized and could suddenly appear and disappear in a surprising manner. We see that in Luke 24 and John 20. But this, that it was nevertheless a material and a very real body that Jesus had. The resurrection of Christ had threefold significance. It was a declaration of the Father that the last enemy had been vanquished, the penalty paid, and the condition on which eternal life was promised was met. It symbolized what was destined to happen to the members of Christ's immortal body in their justification, spiritual birth, and future blessed resurrection. It also connected instrumentally with their justification, regeneration, and final resurrection, as we will see later. The second point of the resurrection. Who is the author of the resurrection? In distinction from others who were raised from the dead, Christ arose through his own power. He spoke of himself as the resurrection and life in John eleven twenty five. He declared that he had the power to lay down his life and to take it up again in John ten eighteen, And even predicted that he would rebuild the temple of his own body, 
John chapter 2. But the resurrection was not a work of Christ alone. It is also ascribed to the power of God in general, in several different passages throughout the New Testament, or more particularly to the Father in Romans 6 and Galatians 1, and as well as in 1 Peter. And if the resurrection of Christ can be called a work of God, then it follows that the Holy Spirit was also operative in it, for these are all works of the triune God. And Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, The very same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies. But as we saw in the text here as well this morning, there's always been people that have tried to deny the resurrection of the dead and do so today as well, and often even within the realms of liberal theology within the so-called Christian church. The attempts to explain away the resurrection um, that Paul addressed in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? See, in their denial, the anti-supernaturalists always run up against the story of the resurrection in the gospel. The story of the empty tomb and of the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection present a big challenge to them. And they accept the challenge and attempt to explain these away without accepting the fact of the resurrection. And the following are some of the main and most important attempts that people have used within liberal mindset to remove the idea of the resurrection. And the first theory, I'll take a look at four of these theories here briefly. The first theory that is used to try to explain away the resurrection of the dead and therefore the resurrection of Christ is number one, it's called the falsehood theory. This is to the effect that the disciples practiced deliberate deception by stealing the body from the grave and then declaring that the Lord had risen. The soldiers who watched the grave were instructed to circulate that story and Celsus already urged it in explanation of the empty tomb. This theory, of course, impugns the veracity of the early witnesses, the apostles, the women, the 500 brethren, and others that profess to have seen the risen Christ. But it is extremely unlikely that the faint-hearted disciples would have had the courage to palm off such a falsehood upon a hostile world. It is impossible to believe that they would have perished or persisted in suffering for such a bare falsehood. Moreover, only the facts of the resurrection can explain the indomitable courage and power which they reveal in witnessing to the resurrection of Christ. These considerations soon led to the abandonment of this view. The next theory is the swoon theory. According to this theory, Jesus did not really die, but merely fainted. While it was thought that he had actually died, but this naturally raises several questions that are not easy to answer. How can it be explained so that many people were deceived and that the spear thrust did not kill Jesus? How could Jesus in his exhausted condition roll away the stone from the grave and then walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus and back? How is it that the disciples did not treat him as a sick person but saw in him the powerful prince of life and what became of Jesus after that? With the resurrection, the ascension is naturally ruled out also. Did he then return to some unknown place and live in secret the rest of his life? This theory is burdened with so many improbabilities that even Strauss, who is a noted atheist, ridiculed it. The next one is the vision theory. This was presented in two forms. First, some speak of purely, purely subjective visions. In their excited state of mind, the disciples dwelt so much on the Savior and on the possibility of his return to them, that at last they actually thought they saw him. The spark was applied by the nervous and excitable Mary Magdalene, and soon the flame was kindled and spread. This has been the favorable theory for a long time, but it too is weighted with difficulties. How could such visions arise, seeing that the disciples did not expect the resurrection? How could they appear while the disciples were about their ordinary businesses and not given to prayer and meditation? Could the rapture or ecstasy required for the creation of subjective visions have started as early as the third day? Would not the disciples in such visions have seen Jesus either as surrounded with a halo of heavenly glory or just as they had known him, eager to renew the fellowship with them, remembering that they did not recognize him when they first saw him? Do subjective visions ever present themselves to several people simultaneously? 
how can we account for the visionary conversations? The second part of this is in view of the extreme weakness of this theory, some scholars presented a different version of the vision theory. They claim that the disciples saw real objective visions miraculously sent by God to persuade them to go on with the preaching of the gospel. This does really avoid some of the difficulties suggested, but it encounters others. It admits the supernatural, and if this is necessary, if we rely on the supernatural, then why not grant the resurrection as recorded in Scripture? It certainly explains all the facts. Moreover, this theory asks us to believe that these divinely sent visions were such to mislead the apostles, and then the question has to be asked, does God seek to work his ends through deceiving his people? The fourth theory I want to look at quickly, mythical theories. A new school has come into existence which discards or at least dispenses with theories of visions and apparitions and seeks to account for the resurrection legend by help of the conceptions imported into Judaism from Babylonia and other Oriental countries. This school claims not only that the mythology of the ancient Oriental religions contains analogies of the resurrection story, but that this story was actually derived from pagan myths. This theory has been worked out in several forms, but is equally baseless in all its forms. It is characterized by great arbitrariness in bolstering up a connection of the gospel story with heathen myths and has not succeeded in linking them together. Moreover, it reveals an extreme disregard of the facts as they are found in Scripture. So we see the idea of denying and doubting the resurrection has been going on for 2,000 years from the time of the early church when the profession of the resurrection of Christ was first made and recorded and has continued on throughout history within the realms often of what is considered the church. So with this thought in mind, let's look at the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the Christian, for each one of us today. And its implications can first be looked at if we go back to our text now in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Well, let's first ask the question, if Christ was not raised. So again, starting in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So the first question, if Christ has not been raised, then our gospel preaching is in vain, according to verse 14. The preaching of the apostles is empty, meaningless. Not simply as having some mixture of falsehood, but as being altogether empty and a fallacy. If Christ has not been raised, gospel preaching is in vain because they proclaimed nothing more than a fairy tale, a story of fiction. For nothing remains if Christ has been swallowed up by death and if he has been overwhelmed by the curse of sin. We also saw in verse 14 that our faith then was in vain. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. Our belief in Christ is also empty, not just our preaching. It is also meaningless. For what hope would we have in faith if there is no hope of life to be seen? For our faith would be in a lie, a story of make-believe. It would not be true. Because the death of Christ in and of itself gives us nothing but a basis of despair. John Calvin wrote in his commentary, He cannot be the author of salvation to others who has been altogether vanquished by death. Therefore, we must consider this, that the gospel consists fully of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. The apostles swore that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Luke writes, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So the apostles themselves are proclaiming that they were witnesses of Christ's resurrection. They claim to have spent 40 days with him after the resurrection, eating and drinking with him. In Acts chapter 10, he writes, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. 
But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Just think of these claims. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, the very servants of God, his apostles and disciples, the writers of Scripture, are then misrepresenting God. They're lying about what God has revealed to them. There is no way they could have been deceived or mistaken. Either they told the truth or they were deliberate in their lies and were deceivers and frauds. Should the apostles ordained by God to proclaim His eternal truth be found to be people who had deceived the world, this would discredit the whole of the gospel message and by extension, the whole scriptures. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ was not raised, then we are still all in our sins. It would have been a liar or a lunatic that died on the cross. Then Christ would not have been the perfect, spotless lamb offered up for the sins of the sheep, as he himself would not have been without sin. No such person could have provided a sacrifice that was holy and without blemish and acceptable to God. And though his death then atoned for our sins, it paid for our sins, so that they would not be imputed to us in God's judgment, and by Christ's death we too have crucified our old man, as seen in Romans 6.6. 6. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And by his death he destroyed the power of death and the devil himself. As the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 14. Then again, as per Romans verse, chapter 6, verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He conquered death through his resurrection. So again, we as believers, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ was not raised, we are still in our sins, and we are not raised from that penalty, which is death. If Christ is not raised from the dead, believers have perished at death, ceased to exist. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Our faith would have been in a false Messiah. They would have had no atonement for our sins. And dying in our sins, there would be no hope. That thought carries into the next verse, verse 19. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Because we live, or sorry, because we believe in a false Messiah, because our faith then in Him, if He is not raised from the death, leads us to refrain from much worldly pleasures. Why are we to be pitied? Unbelievers, on the other hand, are completely intent on intoxicating themselves in worldly living and the present delights that this world has to offer. We are to be pitied because we are often ridiculed or persecuted for our faith. It has been a staple in the course of church history how Christians have been persecuted and often martyred and put to death for their faith. All for a Christ that cannot save? then again, if our hope is only on this side of the grave, we are to be pitied. During the time Paul wrote this letter, the name Christian was so abominable that no one could take the name of Christ upon themselves without exposing themselves to imminent peril. Christians, therefore, were to be pitied the most if, in fact, our faith were only for this side of the grave. But Paul makes it clear the resurrection of Christ is foundational to the Christian faith. If Jesus is not raised, then we should not be Christian. But let's examine the significance from the other side, the gospel implication again of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 20, chapter 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So after showing the implications and confusion that would follow if we should deny Jesus' resurrection, Paul now asserts the fact of Christ raising from the dead. And as in ancient times, the rest of the harvest would follow after the consecration of the first fruits. The first fruits would be taken off the field, they would be consecrated, and then the rest of the harvest would follow. So also the rest of the dead will follow Jesus Christ and in Him, follow Him in being raised again. The point to be proved is that Christ is the first fruits and that He was not merely as an individual that he was, it, sorry, it was not merely as an individual that he was raised up from the dead, for death came as a result of man's sin. Therefore, Adam did not die for himself alone, but for us all. Then it follows that Christ, who is the antitype, did not rise for himself alone, but for us too who have fallen asleep. So a few of the gospel implications and significance of Christ's resurrection are as follows. So now if Christ has been raised from the dead, it verifies our justification. Let's turn to chapter 4 of Romans. In Romans chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse 13. We'll start seeing in a few texts here in the next little bit how directly the gospel writers and the New Testament writers tie the resurrection of Christ to justification, regeneration, to our salvation, to the gospel message. So in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why... His faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul makes a very direct and clear link to the justification of sinners through the resurrection of Christ. It is not merely that Christ died and paid for our sins, it is the fact that God raised him from the dead. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians before, conquering death through that. He goes on in chapter 8 of Romans. By raising Jesus from the dead, God, God also demonstrated his acceptance of Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31. A very familiar passage to most of us here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, 
for your sake we were being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he demonstrated that he was satisfied. He has accepted Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for our sins. Next, if Christ has been raised, it also demonstrates the power available to the Christian. Let's turn to Ephesians for a few verses. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This power is available to us at our conversion. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism, which corresponds to this, 1 Peter chapter 3, says baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt to the body, not speaking of the physical washing, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when we are saved, when we are be- uh, um, come to faith and receive the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that we are changed. Romans 6 says we are died with Christ, we were buried with Him, and then we were raised to newness of life with Him. We are made a new creation. Sin no longer has dominion over us in chapter 6, verse 14 of Romans. This power is also available to live the Christian life. We are given this power at our conversion. But then it is also available throughout the Christian life. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 to 13 reads, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you were put to death, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Because of the resurrection, because Christ's resurrection, we have been given the power to live the Christian life, both at conversion and throughout. And again, because Christ was raised from the dead, it gives us hope concerning our own resurrection. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Peter is writing to a persecuted church that is dispersed because of their faith. They've been persecuted greatly. And he writes to them an encouragement in chapter th- or verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation 
ready to be revealed at the last time. This resurrection gives us a living hope. This resurrection provides for us an inheritance that is incorruptible, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven by God for His children, for the church. In verse 20 of 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Remember earlier when Paul said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are without hope. But we see specifically because God has raised Him from the dead, we have a hope. And not only that, a living hope, a looking forward to the assurance of what is to come. Because by His resurrection, Christ has conquered death. And He has provided for us this hope. In this time, verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1 we ended in verse 5 before, after this promise of this inheritance that God is keeping for us. And in verse 6, Peter goes on, In this you rejoice, this hope, this eternal view of the hope, of the inheritance that God has put aside for us. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been made to grieve by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is specifically because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we as Christians can look ahead, that we can look beyond the suffering of this day and age when we have in our life and times through sickness, through health, through circumstances, through persecutions, we have a living hope. Without the resurrection of Christ, we do not have that. It is this hope that we have to look beyond the here and now. Scripture tells us not to store our treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but to store our treasures in heaven where they last for eternity. And it is with that hope in mind that we have that we can look at the trials that we are facing. Remember when uh, Pastor James Dirksen from the Peace Bible Church was here a few weeks ago, he spoke on First Peter and he referenced the sufferings that these people were facing at the time. It was cruel and at many times inhumane and to those people with the suffering and persecution they were facing Peter suggests that the hope of the resurrection the gospel, the inheritance by, kept by God for us is sufficient it is enough to keep us looking forward and to focus on Christ as we sojourn in this world this hope concerning our own resurrection it gives us hope, especially concerning the resurrection of believers. First Thessalonians, and I'll just read it here. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul draws a contrast here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 18, where he says, If there is no resurrection from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep will perish. And he contrasts that in his letter to the Thessalonians with, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep because of the resurrection. So as much as those who have fallen asleep will perish if there is no resurrection, we as believers have a longing and a looking forward to this hope that we have that the, those who have fallen asleep will not perish. He will bring them with Him. He is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. He was raised. And we come after. And if the resurrection is true, it demands our complete loyalty. Paul again writes in Romans chapter 14, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. He was raised and then exalted to become our Lord 
Ephesians 1, where we were before. don't have to turn there if you're not still there, but in Ephesians 1, chapter, or verse 20, says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He was raised and exalted to become our Lord. Because of this, our lives and service belong to Him. Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So we see, if Christ did raise from the dead, He is the Lord of all. The Apostle John tells us in John chapter 1 and as well as Paul in Colossians, but that through Christ all things were made and not one thing was made that was not made through Christ. So He is the creator of all. He assumed human form, took on flesh, came to this world, lived a perfect sinless life so that He could be the perfect spotless Lamb of God sufficient to sacrifice for our sins. He was brought to the altar of the cross and there crucified and sacrificed for our sins. Our sins were placed upon Him, and He died bearing the penalty of that. And in His resurrection, we receive the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, of Christ. It is in this that we can stand before a perfect God, a perfect judge, and not be guilty of our sin. It is in this that we have hope because of Christ's resurrection. Without that, again, all the rest doesn't matter. And then when He was raised, He was exalted to the right hand of God where He continually intercedes for us. He makes intercession. This Christ, this Jesus, this man who is perfect in all His ways, who is perfect and paid the perfect price, is interceding on behalf of each one of us if we are children of God. He is making an appeal to the Father for us. And what hope does that give us? When we stumble, when we sin, when we have thoughts, when we act out on those thoughts, whatever it may be, to know that we have a great high priest who sits at the right hand of God and says, Father, that sin is paid for. And as God looks down on us as we struggle and as we toil and as we tarry and very often that leads to sinful thoughts and behaviors. Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was sacrificed, was raised again, conquered death, paid for that sin. And He sits beside God the Father making intersection. Father, this is my brother, my sister's. They are your children. And because of that, we will be joint heirs with him. We are united in his eternal reward. And he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, I think it is, we will also be partakers of his glory. So what is the impact of the resurrection of Jesus? And should it go unfelt in the lives of believers? I think we have answered that question today. The answer is no. It should not go unfelt. It is the foundation of the very hope that we have in this life, and not only in this life only, but for eternity. It is a historical event that happened almost 2,000 years ago. And it bears with it everlasting implications. We read in the Scripture, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan for eternity past. And it will have implication into eternity future. And this implication does not end merely at the believer but it extends to the unbeliever. 
What is the barrier, the doctrinal bearing of the resurrection? Again, Louis Burkhoff writes, the question arises, does it make any difference whether we believe in the physical resurrection of Christ or merely in ideal resurrection? For modern liberal theology, the resurrection of Jesus, except in the sense of a spiritual survival, has no real importance for Christian faith. Belief in the bodily resurrection is not essential, but can very well be dropped without affecting the Christian religion. Do we agree with that view? No. That is what happens when we start removing the supernatural from the very message that we believe. It changes the gospel. It changes the hope. It changes the implication. But rather, belief in the resurrection certainly has doctrinal bearings. We cannot deny the physical resurrection of Christ without casting doubt on the integrity of the writers of Scripture since they certainly represent it as fact. This means that if it affects our belief in the tr trustworthiness of Scripture, moreover, the resurrection of Christ is represented as having evidential value. It was the ultimate proof that Christ was a teacher sent from God, the Messiah, and that He was the very Son of God Himself. It was also the supreme attestation of the fact of immortality. That death is not the end. Life continues beyond the grave. Existence continues beyond the grave. He goes on to write, What is still more important? The resurrection enters, the resurrection enters as a constitutive element into the very essence of the work of redemption and therefore of the gospel. It is one of the great foundation stones of the church of God, the atoning work of Christ. If it was to be effective at all, had to terminate not in death, but in life. Furthermore, it was the Father's seal on the completed work of Christ, the public declaration of its acceptance. In, in it, Christ passed from under the law. And finally, it was His entrance on a new life as the risen and exalted head of the church and the universal Lord. This enabled Him to apply the fruit of His redemptive work. So then, believer, we must never lose sight of the significance of the resurrection. Do our lives demonstrate that we serve a risen Lord? Do we live with an eternal hope that is not based in the consequential factors of the here and now, the things that will fade, be it rather in hard times or in good? Do we base our hope when things are going well? Do we base our hope in our circumstances? Or do we base our hope when things are going bad in the struggles that we are toiling through? Do we possess the hope, peace, and strength that the reality of the power of His resurrection gives to us as Christians? Again, we saw in 1 Peter, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, incorruptible, guarded by God in heaven for our final salvation, for our final glorification. Again, a treasure that we have because of the resurrection of Christ. This is the hope that we have to endure all things because it gives us an eternal focus, not one that is weighted down by the temporary. And if Christ be raised from the dead then it also bears very, very important implications for the unbeliever. Then he needs to examine the significance of the resurrection very carefully because if Christ is raised from the dead, the believer has to acknowledge, or the unbeliever has to acknowledge that it verifies the deity of Jesus and that he has all authority. It verifies the truthfulness of what he taught such as no one can come through the Father but through Him, John 14.6. His blood was shed for the remission of sin, Matthew 26.28. He came to offer an abundant life, John 10.10. He went to prepare a place for us, John 14.2. And He will come again, John 14.3. And there will be a resurrection of the dead, 
and then ensuing judgment. John chapter 5 as well as chapter 12. So if Jesus rose from the dead, then one must believe in him. This is the implication that it has and the significance that it bears for the believer as well as the unbeliever. And this is why we carry this message at all cost into the world around us, knowing that even in the proclamation of the gospel, it should urge us to look past, and I think we can probably all admit that we struggle with looking at the, if we share the gospel, the, the, the very temporary but the very real situations it puts us in through persecution, through spite, through all those things. But if we continue to push ourselves to look at the resurrection, it forces us to look beyond the here and now, and it forces us to look into eternity. And then yet now, for a little while, we suffer. All of a sudden becomes the small picture. It becomes something that seems bearable now. It becomes something that we can look beyond and find hope no matter how we get treated here, no matter the cost we pay on this side of eternity, to take this message of hope to the world, to the unbelievers, and also to remind each other as brothers and sisters in Christ of this hope that we have in Christ and in the resurrection. So with that, may we never forget the significance of the resurrection of Christ in our lives and the implications that this doctrine has on the very gospel we proclaim, which is the good news, both here and for eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you again this morning. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace. And God, as we again fellowship together as a body here, and we are reminded of the resurrection of your Son, that you raised him from the dead in order to give us hope beyond the grave. You conquered death, the final enemy, through his resurrection. And Lord, let us walk in such a way that the world sees that hope in us. As we bear this message of hope to a lost and dying, hurting world, Lord, as many people are suffering, let us be a beacon of hope based on the truth of this message. That you lived, Jesus. You died and were buried. And you were raised again. Therefore, our identity as believers is with you, Lord. And I pray that you make this real in each one of our lives here today. In Christ's name.